You're listening to the new Mutual Audio Network. Welcome home. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. Sonic Speaks. Hello, folks. Just a little preface. Tonight's Nightfall interview had some poor quality recording through the internet. I apologize to both Bill Gray, who is a master of stories, and you, gentle listeners, who have a treat in store for yourselves. Regardless. And welcome to Sonic Speaks. My name is Jack Ward, and today I have a really special guest. I am speaking with Bill Gray, producer of CBC Audio Dramas. Bill, thank you so much for coming. I, I just really enjoy CBC Audio Dramas from way back when I was a kid. So you're very welcome, and it's interesting, and, and well, it's flattering and amusing and interesting that nearly 40 years later, there are people online you know, making lists of favorites and talking about this and this very interview, that there's interest in the stuff that we did back then, because we were with Nightfall, we, in particular, Bill Howell was the creator of the concept of the whole series, and he used to refer to it as rock and roll radio drama. I think it was somebody like me who was a rock and roll maniac. You know, prior to that, a lot of radio drama was really theatrical, like as in theater, the kind of theater on the radio. And that was a right. legacy of the kinds of people who did radio drama in Canada. Not all of it was like that, but, you know, there were shows called Sunday Matinee and, you know, mm-hmm. it was all that slightly precious stuff. And we were younger and we were like, we grew up on you know, listening to the Beatles and the Stones and Pink Floyd, you know. Right. When we were thinking about audio, we weren't thinking about teacups. We were thinking about freaking, you know, <laughs> huge, big sounds and, and uh, special effects and all of that as well as the actual inherent drama and story. So it was a different sort of sensibility. So Bill created the idea of Nightfall, and it was exciting to a lot of us because it was breaking new ground. What was his inspiration for Nightfall? Was he looking back on other old-time radio shows? Like you said, maybe the BBC would be the best sort of influence for something like the Sunday Matinee series, but maybe he had something else in mind when he was thinking of Nightfall. I, I think a little bit. You know, we talked about it back then. I don't really remember in detail, but, <laughs> but probably a little bit of that, plus the American radio drama of the 30s, with the shadow and all those sorts, which I always liked that sort of thing, which was not theater-based. It was much more movie-based at that time. I did a BA in drama and it was all theater. So I come out of the theater background. I was an actor in the theater professionally for a few years. So I'm well aware of the theatrical thing, but certainly for me, I wanted radio drama to be not that. I wanted it to be much more experimental and much more involving rather than just listening, you know? I think you make a really good distinction there. I think that the original sort of British came up with the theater of the mind idea and the Americans really locked on to the movies for the mind where it really made it feel more like you were watching a film. I think that's true. And that was, I mean, I'm biased because that was certainly my own take, you know, like it's, that, that's what I believe. Mm-hmm. I think that was true. Now, with that said, the BBC evolved out of that. And they just, when I was doing radio drama in the early 80s, I listened to the BBC stuff and meet with them and they did some really terrific experimental stuff. I mean, they just went way out there. So they changed and evolved from the theatrical thing as well. Yes, I remember Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was incredible yeah, at the time. for example. I mean, they just took the ball and ran with it. But Howell's inspiration, I think, was a sort of a generalized one, plus the nature of Bill Howell, the person. That was, as he said, rock and roll. 
I mean, that was certainly in my head when I took the set of Calgary. And I, I, just, I remember an interview for it because they interviewed and stuff. And I said, well, I want it to be different. I want it to be, I don't think I said non-theatrical, but I, I meant that. All I could, I could hear all the rock and roll records in my head and going, let's do sound like that, not just four people in a room, with, as I say, clinking teacups. Let's go for it and use effects and things like that. And this is before digital. Digital just started to happen when I was doing it, just the very beginning. So we had to do a lot of elaborate things to get different sounds. I started with CBC in, in the late 60s up north as a radio announcer producer, and I was 18 years old. I was ridiculously young. Um, <laughs> but we would play with audio on the days off and just start doing, making up shows and pulling around and doing things with tape machines and seeing what we could do. So I had a background in wanting to fool with audio, and uh, I still love audio. I think it's great. That brings up some really interesting things, and I, I want to get into some of the things that you did when it came to sound effects and such, how you layered many of those things together. Because nowadays, like you said, digital has made it so much easier than what you guys were doing reel-to-reel tape. It must have been a mammoth production just putting together one of those shows. It was a, definitely a challenge, but we didn't know about the future. Like, we didn't know what was coming. We just knew what we had. One of my favorite stories I always tell people about when I go back, we had two tracks, you know, and, and like and I have logic in my computer and I've got unlimited tracks. Right. So you just layer in three layers and got the same sonic quality and etc. But back then you had two tracks so you might record some stuff on one track and as we called it, bounce it to the other track. So it went to the other track in a mixed form and then you freed up another track, so the first track. But when you did that, you had a loss of sonic quality. So you had to do it with certain equalizations to try to make up for that loss. And so it was a real complicated guessing game to not end up with a bunch of muddy sound, right? Sure. Doing radio drama, we had, I think we had four tracks at that point. So, and eventually eight. But eight was just unbelievable luxury. Good bounce track. The first generation bounce was usually not too bad. It didn't notice much of anything. So you might mix dialogue tracks with some sound effects and then put, move that to one track. We need a free track to add other music and sound and whatever else. So a lot of it was planning. Were the actors recording all at once together then to save recording time? Mostly that's what I did, yeah. I recorded the actors, just the actors by themselves. Mm -hmm. Occasionally with the odd little sound effect, but mostly just the actors. Now, traditionally at CBC, that's not how you did it. You did it with the sound effects person with their own little board there, and they would do things as you went along. I didn't do that because I felt the loss of control. Because once you've got a track with dialogue on it and some door slamming, you can't change anything. It's it's what it is. Right? right, covers a word, you're kind of screwed. So I did it separately, which I'll come to in a, in a bit. But when we got a new head of drama, uh, she completely scuttled that whole process for us because she, she was old fashioned and didn't believe in it. So we had a lot of fighting about how to do it and how to deliver the best stuff. Plus, stereo had just sort of happened in that CBC where we were doing things in stereo. It sounds rather late in the game, but it was. Cameras right. were all done in mono. And so once you got stereo, you were dealing with the, the stereo spectrum, which was wonderful because you create a more involving experience for the audience. But it did mean technically it was more complicated to actually record the stuff. But anyway, to answer your question, I would certainly, I think almost everything I did was record the voice tracks separately, work with the actors. Producing radio drama at CBC, you're a producer and director. It's not a separate thing. So we would direct the actors through the process and get all the stuff down and then start working on the sound effects, both the Foley, which is the stuff that's quote unquote live, you know, somebody slams the door or your footsteps or whatever somebody's physically doing in the studio, plus any additional sound things that have been done and sometimes most of the time we would sort of work out a soundscape of some sort and pre-mix it and make it its whole thing and then add it to the master track as an already mixed 
background. Sure. Did you do the casting as well? Yes, everything. Wow. That gets me into a bit of dirty laundry here, but I'll go there anyway. <laughs> okay. When I arrived at CBC as a drama producer, I, I'd been at CBC before, as I said, as an announcer mm-hmm. producer guy, but it was in 78 or 79, I think. And the way the CBC was structured at the time, which was incredibly dysfunctional, they had a drama department. The headquarters was in Toronto, the much reviled Toronto and the rest of the country because they treated the region, called it as substandard, which wasn't true. But anyway, yeah. little sort of dirt. But the head of drama and a couple of producers were based in Toronto. And each of about five different cities, uh, Halifax, Montreal, Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, and Regina, and Winnipeg, had each had a drama producer. And each location had a little bit of local money, local slash regional money that we could do some dramas on. But you really wanted to do the network stuff. Right. But that was totally Toronto. So whoever was the executive producer of a given series would be based in Toronto. And you basically had to go and beg them to let you get your show on their series, right? So it was, as I said, it was dysfunctional because you had to be every day to sort of justify your job. Yes, we should do drama in Calgary. Well, I don't, I don't know. We don't know if we should. But it wasn't up to them. Right. Each individual producer across the country was hired by and reported to the director of radio in each of those cities, not to the head of drama. And as I said, it, it made for this sort of difficult situation that, you know, we all fought through it because we were all doing it because we wanted to do it, not just as a job, but we loved the whole form. So we all sort of stumbled around. And then somewhere, I, I don't know, about maybe three years in from the three or four years in for me, a woman named Susan Rubish was hired to be the new head of drama when the previous one left. And she brought an American sensibility. She came from the soap opera world in New York. And she said to a friend, I happen to be present, said, oh, who's developing the scripts? The producers. Isn't that ridiculous? She had this idea that producers were dumbass technical idiots and basically felt that the scripts should be developed by a script department of dramaturges, as she would put it. <laughs> so she proceeded department headed by a guy named Urgent Pareda, who had been one of the artistic directors of the Stratford Festival. Oh. A terrific guy, but and needing a temporary job between theaters, really. But anyway, he took it on, and they set up this department. So the idea was they would just ship us scripts, and we would produce them, reduce the Toronto costs, right? right? But the producers, those of us producers, were, excuse me, but our job is to develop the scripts. That's what we do. That's mm-hmm. part of our job. Work with the writers, find the writers, develop them. And unfortunately, during that time, I'm leading to a point here, I became president of the National Radio Producers Association. And our association went, uh, that's a jurisdictional problem. Producers develop the scripts, not some script department. So we were at loggerheads with Rubish right from the, the get-go. And she, that's all on me, of course. She was really unhappy when I became president of the union and said so. I don't know what her language thing is on this interview, but she came up with, what the fuck did you do that for? So, you know, it was a lot of uh, a lot of, of difficult stuff at that point. What season would that have been that this all happened? Uh, season of, of night, like Nightfall was she, Nightfall started right around the time that she did. Okay. Bill Howell is one of the people she didn't fire because he, she couldn't. This, the, Nightfall was so popular that right. she couldn't. She was like a very American attitude. She wanted all her own people in there, right? And she did that except for Howell. She couldn't fire Howell because he was he did this Nightfall thing, right? Which was so great. Right. And we knew it was good. And so that would have been around 82 or 3, I think. Sure. With that, she managed to convince all the various directors across the country to fire their drama producers wow. who were basically on Conway. And I was the last one she, to, that she got. She worked really hard to do it. And what she did, uh, and I found this out later for sure, I suspected, but I didn't know, she had the dramaturgy department send me a script that they thought was awful and have me produce it and then they could then they could attack me for being incompetent. 
And that's what they did. It was a script called The Porch Light. Right. The Porch Light now is at the top of all the lists online. <laughs> that I received the script, and I, things were really, really ugly. And I received the script, and I remember saying to my wife, I think I'm being set up, but I can't be sure. Right. So I read the script, and I went, this is really not a good script. And I had a few days' notice to do it. I had no, no time to rewrite it. Technically, I wasn't allowed to rewrite it. And I was the only producer who was also a writer. So that was sort of hurt that I couldn't at least fix it. Anyway, I remember saying to myself... I've got to produce the shit out of this thing, right. meaning like just all stops pulled out to, to, to make it wow in audio terms because the story was really dumb. It, it was the first time writer that I never did meet. You know, his intentions were good, but he just didn't he just didn't have the, the chops. Right. So anyway, I ended up producing the thing and, and, and all its wowsy bam bam stuff. And sure enough, for Joe, the head of dramaturgy, I found that he told me this later that she told him to write a, a memo saying what a piece of crap that I'd just done and had to be fired. He refused, so she got her executive producer guy in Toronto to do that, which he did, and a few years later apologized to me for it, because we were friends. Anyway, so they said this scathing memo just about how incompetent every aspect of this production was. So you can imagine my amusement 35 years later, finding out it's at the top of the list online <laughs> among fans of the show. Well, this is what happens when you have such a love for what you were doing. That shows through in your production, right? Yeah, and then the Kappa's story, just to say, I mean, she... She got me fired. We took it to the legal arbitration and I won and I got money and stuff because she didn't like to stand on it. It wasn't incompetent whatsoever. And so she didn't have just cause. But that's the story. But it, I guess it's kind of an irony, of course, that the show goes on that so many years later that people are emailing me saying, what a great show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Porchlight is certainly one of the top ones. And you were out of Calgary at the time when this one was produced? Yeah. Yeah, it was the last one I did. They immediately sent a memo like within a couple of days of receiving it to say what a piece of shit it was and <laughs> on and on. And that gave them the leverage with the then local regional director of, of radio to say, well, this guy's incompetent, we've got to get rid of him. It was totally political, right? Of course. So, as I said, so many years later, 35 years later to discover, I mean, I knew the show was good because I played it for enough people to know that scared the shit out of them. So I, <laughs> I, I wasn't doubting my producer chops. Right. You know, I was, and I was, you know, my wife was pregnant eight months and all this oh, stuff, goodness. I was out of the job. And, you know, so it was an upsetting time, to say the least. Yeah. And I loved reading the drama. Mm. And the only positive thing I'll say about Rubich is she did acknowledge I was a good writer. And even after I left, I, started, I wrote for them, like, right away. Well, that's what I'd like to mention, too, because... Two of the, also some of the most favorite shows were shows that you wrote. You wrote Gerald and you wrote The Dentist. Yeah, and from what I've seen, they're very popular. And, and I wrote other, I don't, I wrote another Nightfall, I think. I can't remember which one it was. And then I wrote a couple of uh, Vanishing Points, which, which was almost sort of a sister series right. that came after when Nightfall moved to Vancouver as a, as a starting location. I wrote all the intros and extras for the hosts of the show for a year or two. How long did it take you to get those up? This is for the third season host, too, because he was a new host as well. Yeah, the producer was Don Kowalchuk, and he would just send me the finished script, or not script, but uh, product. And I would listen to it and then write an intro and extra. I think it was for one season I did that, so 20-some 20, 20 shows. It was Bill Ryder, wasn't it, that was the voice actor, and the character was Frederick Hend? Hend, yeah. yeah. It was Bill Ryder for sure. You know, it was nice to write for because he could do anything. And like I could put little ironic spins and stuff into the intros and he would get it and do it you know like it was it was uh, almost uh, director proof <laughs> like as a writer you like to think that you know i heard that whole season of nightfall i heard lots of others too but i still liked it as an audience person i still liked the show especially the episodes that really worked you know that had twists and stuff you know i grew up as a horror fan both in books and in movies and so nightfall was just like a 
joy because we got to do. And plus, another thing I'd like to say about that show is we had no censorship at all. There wasn't even a mechanism for censorship. You never told ever, don't do this or do that. Like absolutely nothing. And wow. it's actually remarkable that we crossed any semi-invisible line. Uh, there was a little bit of sexuality, I think, but nothing got graphic. I guess we just assumed, right? right. But in terms of the sort of gruesomeness and stuff, we went for it. And I've had people over the years say, Jesus, it lets you get away with that. And I said, yeah, because nobody said anything. Like nobody said, don't do that. Or, that one was, went too far. We never got that from anybody. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. To just do, do stuff, you know. My show, Gerald, you know, is a challenge, at least in theory, challenging to religion kind of show. And I guess couldn't yes. come up for censorship. It didn't. And they just, it was all hands off. It was great. So we were talking about your process. How long did it take you to write one of these episodes? How did that work, that whole process? Well, most of the time, sadly, you had to write the script and then try to sell it. So spec stuff. So there were some, some occasions we'd write an outline, but mostly nobody trusted that, I suppose. And it was just, there was no money. Like, there was no money in this stuff anyway. Sure. So there was no development money. You either bought the script or you didn't. So, I mean, I wrote some scripts that did not get purchased. Not very many, just a couple. Of, but the length of time varied. The, the first one I wrote was Gerald, mm -hmm. which had great attention. It was the first radiogram I wrote. Wow. And it, that took a fair while. I hadn't written one before, but I, I was speaking in the medium. So it happened in bit parts because I was exploring my writing abilities. The one that I remember writing particularly was The Dentist, which was for Nightfall. And I remember sitting in my little home office, sitting down going, okay, I'm going to write a Nightfall. Got to be scary. The, the sound of the dental. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't actually scare me. Like, dentists yeah. don't bother me, but I they bother people that I know. For sure. Three days later, I had a polished draft and it got recorded from with no changes. Wow. That was pretty quick. It just kind of unfolded. And there's a twist in it that just, you know, happened when it happened. I mean, I was writing this thing and building to something. I didn't know what that something was. And then this twist popped into my mind and I did it and it worked. The writing's a strange process. I just finished my second novel a couple of weeks ago. Oh, excellent. And it's risky. I mean, I'm, I'm getting old, so I just thought, screw it, I'll just take chances, you know. Sure. Risky in terms of its content and so, like a lot of people are not going to like it because they will defend them, I guess. But yeah. but it's comic in tone and it takes place in the world of rock and roll and, and uh, high end rock and roll. But it's interesting when you're writing, depending on the person. But I've read a lot about writing fiction by fiction writers, established ones, and most of them are the same. You start off with something and you don't really know where it's going. Norman Mailer said, "If I knew how it was going to end, I wouldn't bother writing it." <laughs> so it's, it's a process of exploration, and I, I did that with the radio dramas as well. I wrote a sitcom series one time for uh, CBC Radio, and it was on sort of a kindly topical kind of thing, but it was mostly comedy right. around an outsized character, very much a sitcom in uh, the broadest definition of it. I mean, every episode of that, I would start off and I'd do a setup, and I'm going, Jesus, I hope I can solve that setup. <laughs> and I did. And that one almost twice almost became a TV series. What was it called? Packing it in. Okay. The small time father and son moving company that had a couple of trucks. <laughs> they would move people based in Calgary, but move people to Vancouver or Toronto or wherever. And he was a wily outsized Greek immigrant character. And it worked really well. It, it did really, really well in terms of audience reaction. Uh, and the, the TV series just, it almost happened, but trying to finance that out of Canada at the time just For was sure. just so I wasn't just writing and I, and I wrote a Bible and episodes and all sorts of stuff. It's heartbreaking when you put so much time into that and it gets almost there. <laughs> but we had the CBC on board for a two episode pilot. We had Telefilm Canada on board. We had everything, but it's still a short money. And we had an American partner, which was his sister who played Connie in the Godfather movies. That's right. Was our oh. American partner, but it just didn't come together because they, you know, being Hollywood people, this, everything's American. And they had Telly Savalas wanting to be the lead. Uh, well, we couldn't do that in Canada. CBC couldn't, couldn't act her in the lead. It's just, and I agree. Right. It got close, but it just didn't happen, which is too bad. 
That is too bad. One, the reading one works really well. And, and I was at law school at the time because after all this stuff, after I left CBC and everything, I ended up going to law school and briefly became a big corporate lawyer. I was, I literally was writing that one while I was at law school. Wow. So that was really a challenge. It was schizophrenic, right? <laughs> For sure. Is there a place where people can find that even today or is it lost to the ether? Well, I know the CBC archives has it because several years ago, I when, when all this internet attention got came up, I got CBC to send me one. I had to actually pay Right. They have them send me my radio dramas that I got. That was one that I got. I didn't get all of them, but so I do have that one. But I don't know that it's out anywhere. It's pretty funny. It was very localized. Well, it was localized, but in you know, local in a universal way, right? Right. It was funny because the characters were fun. Right. But it was really a fun thing to do, and we'd hope to go on and on with it. But that wasn't how things worked in those days. Like I remember, I don't know if you remember this one, Booster McCrane PM, and I really liked that show. But it was like three or four episode show, and then they came up with the sequels some years later but it sort of fell out you know whenever something was green lit you could get a couple of episodes of it yeah the um, like at the time back in the time i'm talking about which is you know late 70s early 80s the drama department was not a department of vision it was just kind of day-to-day and incredible internal battles like the one i described about susan rubish who finally got fired finally but <laughs> there was no overall plan it was just like rubish didn't have a plan her plan was to glorify herself right. and so she took all the credit she could for nightfall even though it started before she arrived right. like that it was it was really like Hollywood 101 kind of nonsense yeah. overall plan and unfortunately there was also a limited fund as well Grady Grammar was pretty cheap to do in, in big boy terms but you know still it was money that was limited so somebody might have a good idea for a series but nobody seemed to have the ability to go okay let's just make it a real series this is ongoing because that would deprive other series of money right Absolutely. or even though there wasn't a lot of dollars in most people's minds there was limited money so speaking of dollars that's a good point how much time did you have to rehearse with the actors before they had to go on because like you said money was tight I'm sure you only had a certain amount of time with the actors, both recording and in rehearsal. Yeah, there were limited, it was a limited time because you only had the actors for so much, depending on what you're paying them, of course. And that was also a bone of contention back then with Susan Rubish, who thought everything should be done in five minutes, the way it used to be done in the 1930s, right? Oh, wow. With these elaborate studios with all their sound effects, glasses and things all around rooms and all these people and everything. She wanted us to do that stuff just sort of like instantly, which was not how all of our thinking was. And she actually convened a big conference at one point where she had all of us from across the country, plus a bunch of potential drama producers from the theater and other places, come to Toronto to work with a BBC, a couple of people from the BBC drama department, and this hack from uh, New York who did Radio Drama 50s. And her stated goal, she told this to, I think it was Bill Howell, but certainly one of the other producers in Toronto, I don't care what it costs, if it gets me to get rid of all these people, that's what I'm doing. She wanted us to be there so that these people could see your people don't know what they're doing. Wow. Now, unfortunately, when the BBC people said, you've got a lot of talent here, <laughs> it really pissed her off. <laughs> Rather than we had to do after that, we were supposedly had been trained, we were to do some drama and all with an incredibly restrictive time frame. And we had to do it in Calgary, which is my base. Right. And we all had were given scripts by the script department because we couldn't develop scripts with the grants. So we did do that. And I got a particularly way up. Like Susan wanted basically rubbish New York soap opera type stuff. She was a very low intellectual person in terms of what she wanted. And the rock and roll video thing didn't make any sense to her at all. So Calgary, and I got saddled with 15-minute drama that was way out there in terms of, it wasn't a typical narrative, it wasn't a typical anything, it was like real esoteric stuff. Right. I was great, 
And they had to do it all in like 15 minutes and had to be done in four hours or something ludicrous like that. So I prepared the shit out of this thing and I had good technicians, thank God. And we did this elaborate plan because I had to have all sorts of effects that had to be done live. Right. And, uh, and I pulled it off and the British people who were there thought it was great. <laughs> Even more, because I realized in later years that was that was part of the setup to get me, right? Right. Was give them something to say it's a piece of shit, that it was my sensibility to do this esoteric crap when we we're trying to do commercial, and, sure. which was not true. So that's how complicated it got. Wow. So we all did things in really short periods of time. And frankly, most of them sounded like that, too. Like, we couldn't use the audio tricks available because it had to be all down the pipe in half an hour, you know? She came from the world where, at one time, dramas were done live, right? Yes. And that's what she wanted to do. She wanted to create more volume with the same money, and that's how she was going to, you know, advance her career. Sure. It didn't work that way because the audience, by that point, didn't want to hear. If you're a modern audience, even like then, the 1980s modern audience, listening to some of the live stuff from the 50s, it's shit. And yeah. we knew that, right? Right. Accepted it as suspension of disbelief, the term we all know, and it can apply to a lot of circumstances. And that's what we did back in the 50s and whatever. You, you put up with the fact that the sound quality was stupid and the sound effects were clumsy and, you know, you just put up with it. But by the time we got into the 80s, people were watching all these movies with really good soundtracks and this and that, and that's their expectation, right? Yes. And that's what we felt. And we wanted to use that, use stereo, create the visual perspective with audio. And so... You can't do that live. It doesn't work. No. And so we all had loggerheads with Susan. I, mean, I wasn't the only person who you know, basically hated her guts. We all did. Right. She was ruining what we thought we had started. Nightfall, fortunately, continued because she, it was untouchable to her, you know? So it was extremely popular at the time, and people knew they had a hit. Yeah. The feedback on CBC Radio wasn't as thorough as it would be on, say, modern television. Right. Uh, but we had did have ratings, and, and also we had a lot of write-ins, you know, a lot of people writing in, and you, you kind of counted one letter as an equivalent of a thousand replies or whatever the number might be yes. because most people don't write in. But we get a lot of, I mean, I had fan letters for some of my Nightfall stuff for sure. That's fantastic. From the States as well? Yeah, that was later. I don't remember when that happened. I, I we might have still been doing the show when it went NPR, but it had been going for a while at that stage. Okay. I'm, yeah, I'm not sure when it happened. We heard about it. The CBC was pretty clumsy about communicating to its creative staff what the hell was going on. <laughs> Sort of left in the dark. I hated about CBC, but I love the CBC for all of its incredible faults. I, I love the CBC. It's where I started. Yes. You know, as an independent producer, I produced movies for them and, and TV series. You know, I, I have bitches, but I also have, you know, plotters. Sure. Speaking of which, that's something I wanted to ask. Did you have any fond memories of some of the actors that you worked with? Yeah, I did. I mean, Calgary was a city of less than a million people at the time. So I drew people from Edmonton and sometimes from Vancouver. I'd fly them in uh, because the acting community it was pretty small because where's the work, right? How do people keep alive? Yeah. A couple of theaters, maybe three theaters maybe, and, and radio drama, and that was it. There's no TV. There's none of this Hollywood North stuff was going on at all. So there was no Hollywood training ground going on. But I had a couple of favorites. One of them was Heather Lee McCollum, mm -hmm. who was also a personal friend and had been for a long time. But I just always loved her ability, especially in radio maybe. Mm -hmm. I, I liked her never. She just had a naturalness, and that's what I was looking for, was a naturalness, not a theatrical display, you know? Sure. She did that. And there's a guy named Michael Ball. Yes. I used to have him in my stuff a lot. He used to say to people, I mean, everything Bill does. Because <laughs> he was just versatile. He could do a lot of things. And again, he had a naturalness that, that came through. So those were, I guess, two of my favorites. It's amazing how some actors are good in every medium, but some actors just really shine in radio drama. Something about their voice 
works really well and gives that sense of intimacy and naturalness. I, I completely agree. I mean, I acted in the theater. There was no TV and stuff back then. Well, a tiny bit of TV, but nothing to talk about. But in my 20s, I acted in theater and I did do some radio drama. Mm-hmm. But I, I was familiar with the other side of the mic, as it were. But I knew actors who were terrific on stage and on came in the studio and it's like, oh God, what am I going to do? Not to demean the person, it's just that it's a different skill. And some people just have a natural skill at it. And because you're creating, it's a very honest thing because it's only your dialogue, right? It's not, right. I mean, we add effects and everything. The visual has to be formed out of the audio performance. Yeah. And audiences, like we all do, we create the visuals in our mind, which is the thrill of radio drama, audio drama, is you can create better sets than anybody could ever build by implying things and by you know, sound effects giving you the impression of things. And of course, by two dialogues with actors, hopefully good dialogue that doesn't say, is that a gun you're pointing at me? <laughs> Yeah, that's never worked. I've always used that as an example as well. The dialogue has to be natural, and yet you have to be able to paint enough of a picture. And you guys use sound effects so incredibly, like so much in the modern vein of using sound effects now. And to know that it was very innovative at the time for you guys to layer in things. There were sound cues that were almost like music cues that were designed to just heighten the tension and to draw out a moment. How did you end up doing those? Well, that goes back to what I said earlier about, you know, Howell saying, let's do rock and roll radio drama. Mm-hmm. And those of us who were rock and roll kind of, I'll say kids, we weren't kids, we were like in our early 30s, but, you know, it was just, yeah, let's do that. And that meant, I use the example of like Pink Floyd creates all sorts of audio images uh, through audio, creates all sorts of visual images in your mind. Absolutely. And they weren't the only rock band at the time that did that. That was our sensibility. So when we hit the Nightfall thing, which was wide open to interpretation because of the nature of the stories, they weren't theatrical navel gazers. They were out there plot-oriented stories meant to frighten or upset. Just right, right for effects and stuff like that. I mean, when I, uh, as I mentioned earlier, when I did my, in my mind, favorite production of The Porchlight, that's what was in my head was I've got a crummy script here, all due respect to the original writer, but I've got a script that doesn't really work. How do I make it seem to work? And it was two things. It was get a couple of actors who are really good and at this radio thing. And then, as I said, produce the shit out of it, just like all the effects things I could think of. And I, I go to the record library and pull all sorts of records and pull little things off different records and noises and little bits of music and whatever. And I cast Heather Lee McCollum and David Perry, who were both actors I'd worked with before and really liked. And without them, it wouldn't have worked. I mean, they just uh, tail out of school. But between takes, we would all burst into laughter together. <laughs> how we- because it sort of didn't make sense. Right. When the internet woke up to this, or when I found out the internet would have fans over this show, I called Heather and said, you know, you won't believe this, but <laughs> you remember the four slides? And oh yeah, God said to laugh. I said, well, guess what? <laughs> it really worked. We were just amazed because at the time, it just, all it, we'd laugh and I'd say, okay, well, got to get serious here. We've got to go over the top on this shit. Like, if yeah. you're going to scream at the rain, right? For sure. And whatever it was. And it was actually interesting because it lit a fuse for us to, to really go over the top right. in a way that it turned out worked for that particular kind of thing. That brings up another question. How did you feel and when did you find out that there was such a love for this from the internet that you had a huge fan base? 
How did that make you feel? Well, it was interesting. It was about, um, I'm going to lose track of time here, but I'm getting old. I've lost all track of time. Uh, you know, several years ago, I'm, I'm going to guess about probably six or seven years ago, maybe, and it might even be more, Neil Marsh, who was setting out to do a book on Nightfall because he was a big fan. He's based in Boston. Right. And he got a hold of various people, including me. And we just sort of hit it off. So we talked to them. I mean, I'm anyway. So we went on and on about stuff. And in the end, the book thing just wasn't working too well. He went up to Toronto to the archives and talked to people there. And he talked to Howell, I think. And he talked to some of the actors and sound people. And eventually he turned it into a, a website. That's when I first found out about it. Cause he just called me out of the blue and said, you know, you used to do some Nightfall stuff. And, and told me and then we got talking about it and he said well it's all over the internet man i said really <laughs> so i looked it up and said, well how did it make me feel it made me feel great i mean and uh, neil proceeded to do a live stage reading of my vanishing point show that i wrote right. called cage of light i think he's still trying to do a more full-blown stage version but anyway then we recorded it i've seen it it was really good but that was him 35 years later so it was wow. it was exciting and it was also, I guess in a sense it was vindication. Not that I thought we should have vindication, because I thought the series was great. And I'm not like, not just on my own stuff. There was, there was some terrific writing and some terrific performances in that show, in that series. Um, a lot of episodes. And um, some of it, even though I was into it myself, as writer and producer and everything, I... I some of those I'd listen to and get chills myself, you know, even though I was well aware of the process. It, you know, it was thrilling to discover an entirely new generation was as turned on as we were at the time, you know. Absolutely. I can roll radio drama, man. It's still, it's still happening. <laughs> From Nightfall into Vanishing Point, which, again, as you said, is almost like a sister show and a beloved one for me as well. I loved Vanishing Point, too. It had a very different kind of tone to it, though. How did you get involved in Vanishing Point? Well, Vanishing Point was run by Don Kowalchuk in Vancouver, who had done the last season as executive producer, like not producing the actual shows necessarily, but being in charge of the series. Mm -hmm. He had done the last season of Nightfall. And then I don't really remember who came up with the notion of Vanishing Point. What killed Nightfall, if I can ask? Because Nightfall went for three seasons. It's a hundred stories. Was that all they ever wanted? or I'm, I've never been quite sure because it was done under Howell's uh, supervision in Toronto and then it moved under Don's in Vancouver, right. which is where I wrote all the extras and stuff. Extra. And then it stopped and it might have been after that. That might have been the last season. I'm not sure. I think it was the last season. Right. And then I was living in Vancouver and I moved to Calgary to go to law school. I remember Don said you know, he had this new series called Vanishing Point. I don't remember who came up with the name or the concept, but it was broader than Nightfall. Like it could, it could be horror, yes. but it could be science fiction. I guess basically something out there, something like not normal. Sure. So the same rock and roll radio sensibility is, as I, at least that's how I interpreted it. So I wrote one called Age of Light, which was science fiction, and it did really well. And I think I wrote another couple, but I don't remember what they're called. And because uh, I was juggling going to law school and writing fiction, it's it's, it's like it really is schizophrenic. Yes. Different parts of your brain going on. But uh, Vanishing Point went for I don't sure, not, at least a couple of years, I think. And it was a good series. It was broader than Nightfall, but it had behind it, I think, a similar sensibility of using sound and using story, not just having people talking in a room, you know? Yeah. It went for two years, which was a little less than Nightfall. It went from 84 to 86. And one of the interesting things, both in Nightfall and in Vanishing Point, was you guys also did a lot of adaptations. In Vanishing Point, you guys did some adaptations of people like Ray Bradbury or Roald Dahl, even Evelyn Waugh, if I remember correctly. And I know that a lot of the fans were saying, that's the first time I heard this. 
like back to Nightfall is like the very first time I ever heard the Telltale Heart was this and it terrified me. Was there a choice to do adaptations that way as well as well as original work? I, I think well speaking about Nightfall in particular a lot of it I think had to do simply with quantity like where the hell do we get stories to do this every bloody week? That's a huge mouthful to bite. For sure. As much as we had some terrific radio writers in the country there weren't wasn't really a long long list and not a long long list of people who could write horror or what we call horror. So part of it was that, and part of it was also familiarity. People would recognize the Telltale Heart, whether they read it or not. They was in the zeitgeist, you know. Right. Personally, I wasn't remotely involved. That was Howell and John Douglas, who was the, the area executive producer at the time. So he was sort of a 2IC to the head of drama. Right. But I was never a big fan because as a writer, I was all about original stuff. You know, I wasn't. Sure. I had no interest in adapting anything. I wanted to do my own imagination. But that, that, that was a biased <laughs> point of view. I certainly some of the, the adaptations that were done were done really well and they were great. But every time I'd hear an adaptation, they, oh, there goes one original that's not on. You know? It's my own <laughs> selfish perspective. But yeah, there were some really good ones were done. But there was no directive. There was no, this should be this, this percentage of this many or whatever. It was just like, where the hell do we get some good ideas and like uh, make sure we have a show for Friday? Right. It's much more kind of harsh and immediate than everybody thinks there's a lot of big plans when there aren't. Yeah. <laughs> the only real plan for Nightfall was in Bill Hollow's head. Wow. And and those of us who felt similarly, which is, let's just keep doing this shit. It's working. Sure. I don't really know. You have to ask Carl. I don't know why he stopped doing it and it went to Vancouver. I mean, there was probably some politics about getting stuff out of Toronto and all decisions out of Toronto and like that. But I don't know for sure because maybe he just got tired of it. I think there might be a little bit of that. Sure. I doubt he was like forced, but who knows? It was a, it was a very Byzantine operation at that time. <laughs> Do you think that there would be a new nightfall now, do you think it would be just as much of a hit? Uh, to be honest with you, I think that that's a very tough question to answer because there are so many qualifications one could bring to it. But right. I personally think that if you could pull it off, it would work. Right. The problems are huge, though. Like, how do you get it out there? CBC, for example, has no radio drama department anymore. Right. Things And if it could be done by somebody else in some way or other, it would have to be internet connected somehow or other. And of course, as we know, the internet is flooded. Flooded is you know, right. an understatement with stop. So it would be about how to get it out there. If it could be achieved, and financing would be an issue because it's not expensive, but it's not free For sure. to do. You know, again, four people in a room with teacups live, sure, but nobody's interested in listening to that shit. That's you know? right. Yeah. All, with, all with mid-Atlantic accents and, and <laughs> <laughs> a lot of stuff done before my time at CBC Radio Drama that I really hated. Right. This time and I go, oh God, not that again. <laughs> but I had arguments with friends who produced, but I just don't think it's a theatrical medium. I think it's more of a movie medium. Right. Movie and movie of the mind medium. Sure. What I was trying to do is, as I said earlier, I think, but to get people not just to listen and watch, as it were, but to feel involved. And that's where the use of sound, not just dialogue, but sound in general, had a real impact. If you sat down and listened, especially in modern day with headphones and dark room or whatever, it takes you into the story yes. as opposed to presenting to you. And that's what I think we articulated or not. I think that's what we were trying to do with Nightfall and with other, with other shows. I mean, I did other shows that weren't, mm -hmm. did some hour long dramas and, and that were dramas, but I did them like movies, not like theater pieces. Yeah, you're right. The immersive nature of Nightfall and Vanishing Point, that's what really draws you in because you're lost to 
the fact that you're listening and you're experiencing a show. Yeah, well, I'll give you one example that for some reason always sticks in my head. That's a bit of a boast, I suppose. But there was a series called, I think it was called Matinee, but it doesn't matter. It's an hour-long series. It was on Sundays or something. Anyway, so we would pitch to whoever was running it out of Toronto and say, I got a script here, I got an idea, whatever. And so I went to a well-known Canadian playwright who had done a lot of radio drama with, with me as well, called Sharon Pollock. And got this idea, the German is an idea. And so we talked it through and she went away and wrote this script called Sweet Land of Liberty. And it's basically about a U.S. draft dodger in Canada and a very heavy drama. She wrote the script and everything and we went to produce it. They got you know, a really good gang of actors to do it. And eventually it won the, the actor award for that did the script. Susan wow. Rubich hated me even more for because I had developed it <laughs> as opposed to through her writing department. Really set her off. At the award ceremony she came up to me in Vancouver and she came up to me and said, I suppose I'll never hear the end of this. That was her congratulatory comment to me. Right? <laughs> her hatred of me was huge. Oh. Anyway, there's a scene in it where this guy, he's got what we now call PTSD, this character. He wasn't a Dodger, he was that. Throughout the story, becoming more unhinged. There's one scene where he's with his sort of girlfriend, played by Heather Lee McCollum. But there's a scene where they're talking, they're in a bar. And he's becoming unhinged, and he'll suddenly kind of go a little off, and she's going, well, what's wrong? Well, I had to do something to trigger her to say that, right? Not just him saying something weird. Sure. So we're in the studio together. It's all recorded, of course, at that point, the voices. And so I got this idea of taking, and this is before digital happened, taking her voice and putting a reverse echo on it. So instead of something going, kind of came forward instead of going off. And we had to use a tape recorder and tape across the room and one thing or another just to do this. But it created this really interesting effect that sort of sucked you in to her perception. And he's going, his character's going, what, what's wrong? She's going, are you okay? And I I can't imitate it, but it was really cool. That was the kind of thing that we would do because it would, in the old, older time radio, they would just have a line of dialogue that would explain that he was weird. Whereas I was trying to give the the audience feel the weirdness, not just... That's perfect. Yeah, that's exactly. It really, really worked, and and, and that was not a science fiction or horror show. It was a straight drama. Right. We, and there were a few other things we did with that as well because we were taking us into the fact that this guy was just increasingly unhinged and losing it. Wow. And in the end, he committed suicide. But it, it was a good script. I mean, it was a really good script, so it was great to work with. And I had really good actors in it. Powerful stuff. And I love these stories. And so I guess we're running out of time, but I could go on and listen to stories forever. Do you have any advice for people nowadays who are making audio drama? What would you? Say say are the most important things they need to focus on to do great work. Well, I harken back to Howell's comment about rock and roll radio drama. I think that's a good sensibility to have if people understand what that means. It doesn't mean what it obviously means, but it just means the sensibility of trying to pull people into the story rather than just presenting it to them, which I think is something audio drama can do almost better than anything else, right. uh, assuming you have a sense of listener. And most of you have a sense of listeners because otherwise, why would you listen? If you're playing radio drama and audio drama and other things going on, you're not going to hear it. doesn't work, right? This doesn't happen. Whereas if you're watching on your TV, you're watching some movie and somebody interrupts you and you talk, you often don't even rewind to carry on. With a radio drama, you're screwed if you try to do that. So I think it's really important that you pull people in and then hold them there to a combination of performance, script and the sound effects, the sound, the audio, the, the music, whatever it is. And I go back to my story about the porch lights. And again, not to beat my own chest on it, it's just I've often tried to figure out why did it work when I thought the script was so bad. 
But mostly it worked because I just went, well, just go for it. Don't be afraid to go over the top right. in terms of adding music and everything else. Like, don't always have to really have to justify every note that comes out. If sure. it feels right, then that's what I did with that. If it felt right, I threw it in and it worked. So you're going on instinct sometimes more than you're going on flesh. Well, thank you again for taking the time to speak with me about this love that we both have of radio drama or audio drama as we call it nowadays. I really appreciate this background. I'm a big CBC fan myself throughout the years and I'm so grateful to be able to have this time to speak with you. Thank you so much again, Bill. Well, thank you very much for putting up with my babble. <laughs> I hope it's useful. Absolutely. And again, I still love the concept of the CBC. I have criticisms about all sorts of things, but that's fair enough. Sure. I think we got to do this stuff back then. It's just a shame that we don't get to do it now. listening to Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network, we invite you to continue the amazing audio tomorrow on Mutual with the Monday Matinee. Our weekly series of dramatic, theatrical, classic, eclectic, and live radio dramas. You can subscribe to the full Mutual Audio Network feed every day for the world's largest curated collection of audio drama or find the Monday Matinee feed in your favorite podcast players. See you tomorrow at the Matinee and thanks so much for listening. The Mutual Audio Drama Network, where we listen and imagine together.